I'm Pastor Richard Gamble, and the following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Bastrop, Louisiana. To find out more about First Baptist Bastrop, go to www.firstbastrop.org. That's www.firstbastrop.org. Well, good morning. Thank you guys for, for, for just having us here. And Richard, thank you for letting me come up today and to, to share from God's Word and to share with all of you. And just want to thank all of uh, First Bastrop for how you guys have embraced us and Shelly and I just made us feel welcome and we love being here. And even from the first moment we visited, uh, we had enjoyed having folks who just, uh, like I said, really just came out to meet us and embrace us and show interest in us. And so we thank all of you for that. And I'm really glad to be able to be up here and to share with you this morning. I want to go ahead and start with, uh, with reading the passage. That, no, just, okay, I'll start with uh, reading the passage. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12 this morning. If you would, go ahead and stand with me as I read from God's Word, and then uh, we'll uh, pray over that, and then we'll get started. Chapter 7, starting with verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that, would you just bless the, the reading and speaking of your word this morning, Lord, and we just thank you so much that Lord, we can gather together today and look in your word and we just Thank you that you have given us your word, that we're in a place where we can have it before us and read it, and that we're in a place where we can gather together and worship you openly, and that we can praise you openly. And Lord, we just ask that you use your word today to touch our hearts, Lord, to, to touch our minds, Lord, to open up, uh, let us know a little bit more about you, and Lord, just work in our lives that we may go out from here and be more of the people that you would have us be. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you. All right. Well, so when Richard asked me to preach, uh, I had mentioned that I went to New Orleans Seminary and I've done some teaching. That's my background is New Testament studies and I've done some, uh, a lot of teaching, but not as so much preaching. So I'm more of a teacher as, as a background. So when I talked to him about a little over a week ago about what I would like to to present. Uh, I gave him a, some ideas and I went home and looked at them and I figured out what I had was a pretty good 90-minute lecture. So I hope you kind of settled in and prepared for that. I got, you know, no, I'm just kidding. I, I, I boiled it down and we'll have more of a, uh, the sermon this morning. I do want to mention one other thing that I probably need to, to mention first too. And then this is sort of to uh, 
This is just for a couple of you here. Now, the rest of you can go ahead and check out for about 30 seconds. You know, go ahead and get your peppermint out and unpeel it and not worry about the wrapper sounds or anything else. But there's a couple of you, like, you're excited. We are in Revelation. And you are thinking, man, we are going to figure this out right now. We are about to see, is this dude, is he pre-meal? Is he post-meal? Is he our meal? Are we looking at, uh, is he a pre-trib guy? Is he a post-trib guy? Is he a mid-trib guy? Well, we're not really going to be dealing with that this morning. What we're doing this morning is we're going to look at the, the text and we're going to just look at what would John's hearers have heard and what would have been encouraging. The point I want to get to this morning is I want to look at how this passage was an encouragement to them that God is gathering his people into his kingdom and I want that to be the encouragement for us. And for you guys that have checked out for about 30 seconds, you can come on back and if you, if you checked in early, and you heard some words that you, you were like, what is he talking about? Then don't worry about it. We're not going to do that again. So I just wanted to go ahead and mention that up front in case, you know, just, we're not going to be covering those kind of things. What we want to do is just look at this passage and what did this passage say to the folks in John's time and what does it say to us and how can it be an encouragement? I hope you go away from here being encouraged that knowing that God is at work even now bringing his people into his kingdom. And we're going to look at this picture there at the end. And I want to start with the first thing I want to look at right here is beginning in verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And I want to look at that, that the first thing is that God is gathering a multitude that no one can count. When he says after this, he's really looking at, we're looking at a vision that John had of this multitude. And this multitude's gathered around before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're going to be praising, singing a song of victory before God. And this, this vision that he has here is really part of a second vision. And we have to kind of step back just a little bit. This, this is all connected to chapter 4, verse 1, that another vision that had begun there with the exact same words. After this I looked, and behold, same opening, but John had saw a door opened in heaven, and he had been escorted up into heaven to be able to see the world from the perspective of heaven, not just from the perspective of what's going on around us. You know, sometimes one of the reasons I want to talk about encouragement is because when we look at the world around us, it's easy to get discouraged. When we see the news, it's easy to be, get discouraged. When we look at our, our own lives sometimes with the difficulties and the challenges we face, it's easy to become discouraged. And when we think about even our church and the things that we want to do, we want to see our church grow and we want to see more people come to it and we want to see it, you know, blossom and flourish and reach more people. And sometimes it can be discouraging uh, when we think about that. And so what we want to do is think about John was writing to encourage these people and this vision that Christ had given him uh, was part of the encouragement. And going back to chapter 4, he had been able to go into heaven and see those things that had been discouraging to him. He could see them from a heavenly perspective. You know, the things that were going on in society around him and the challenges and the tribulation that he says that he and the, uh, and the, the churches there in the province of Asia that he was writing to were going through. And so he goes into heaven and he sees the heavenly throne and in chapter 5, there's an episode there that as he's looking at the heavenly throne and you see uh, the one who's seated on the throne and the one who's seated on the throne has his 
personal private scroll in his right hand. And we know it's his personal private scroll because it's written on both sides. And scrolls would have typically only been written on one side so that another person wouldn't have been able to see it. But this is written on both sides, and it's got sealed with seven seals. And they say that, you know, that no one could be found to break it, worthy to break open those seals. And then John said he began to weep. And then one of the elders told him, don't weep no more because one is found worthy. And he says, he, he said he heard, he began to weep loudly, and the elders said to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So he hears the lion of the tribe of Judah who's conquered. And then he looks and he sees between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, he sees a lamb. Not the lion, but the, la the, lion, the lamb that is the lion. This lion that's conquered is actually a lamb and this lamb is standing as though it's been slain. It's the slain lamb that is conquered, and that's a key theme for what we're going to. This lamb that then is worthy to open the seals on this scroll, and he's, he's opening these seals on the scroll in chapter 6. The judgments of God are starting to be uh, opened up, and we can see these judgments of God. And then we get to the sixth seal, is where I want to start. And then we get to the sixth seal, and the day uh, we see that there's earthquake, the sun becomes black, the moon becomes full of blood, and stars fall from the sky, and we see that we're on the day of God's wrath. And the people who have been living contrary to God and against God are trying to flee. And they say this, they call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That question's important because in chapter 7, what God, there's a space, space here that there's a pause in the action here at the first of seven. And what we see in chapter 7 is the answer to that question. Who can stand? And what we're going to see is the multitude that God is gathering for his glory. The great multitude is the ones who will stand. They'll stand through the tribulation, the times of difficulty, the times of challenge, and then they'll stand before God, not in fear, not calling for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from God, but they'll be able to stand there in front of the one who's on the throne and the, and the lamb, and they'll be able to do that because of what the lamb has done for them and for God calling them out. So let's look. And why can we be uh, encouraged that we know God's gathering the people into his kingdom? First, as we look at that, like I said, we've looked at, this is a multitude, a great multitude that no one could number. You know, this is a number of people that John says no one could even count these people, right? We can easily look around us, and we look, and we see ourselves, and sometimes we think, you know, the gospel, it's not really reaching people. And I've invited people to church. I've shared with people about Jesus, but it, it's not reaching people. We get that feeling sometimes. You know, in the U.S., we've had a dramatic change from the year 1900. We had about 1%, 1 to 2% of the people who would declare themselves as non-religious. Today, it's 15% or more that would declare themselves as a nun, you know, no affiliation. They're agnostic or atheist. We have a lot of people in our churches that used to be here. I've heard this 
several times while I've been here that used to be in churches, but since COVID-19, they've gotten out of church and they haven't come back. So it's getting dis it's discouraging. That's going around with lots of churches. And so we feel like maybe, you know, the gospel is just not really reaching people and we can't get people to, to really serve God or come out or to love God the way God wants them to. But God's word right here tells us that's not really so. You see, what he says here is that God is gathering a multitude, a great multitude, more than anyone can count. And it, think about this. You've got to think about when John lived, and John is writing this. There's different dates on when you can think it is, but at the latest, it's at the end of the first century. At the latest is what, you know, for the, John writing the, the book of Revelation. We're talking about the end of the first century. Now, he's writing to the churches in Asia, which is in modern-day Turkey. It's on the coast. In fact, it's right where I liked our reading this morning. Richard read all those islands that are right around there, and John's on one of those islands, not one that was listed, but he's on Patmos, which is right around those islands. And he's, he's confined there. He's there because of his preaching of the Word of God and his faithful witness to Jesus. And as he's there, he's writing back to these churches in Asia Minor. And Asia Minor was... Uh, or this province of Asia, which is today Asia Minor, Turkey, this area was a flourishing area for the churches. We mentioned Ephesus that Paul had just gone past in the reading this morning, but Paul had already been to Ephesus in the, the book of Acts prior to that that we read about, and he had helped establish churches there. His ministry, in fact, we read it in the book of Acts that Paul went to Ephesus, and for two years he spent teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. And it says that all the residents in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. And so this was an area where God was at work. And so you could see there was people coming in, but still, despite all this activity and the, the number of Christians there, this was still been an extremely small minority. Estimates, you can go back and check and see, based on the number of, uh, you know, looking at you know, the literature and looking at the number of names and, and the places that we find Christians, the estimated range of the number of Christians about the time John's writing this is probably between 7,500 and 50,000. That's broad range, but that's the small to the largest that I've seen as, as estimate. You know, one of those is even smaller than Bastrop, right? So this is out of the Roman Empire would have had about 55 to 60 million people in it. And so think about it. John's imagining, he's seeing how many Christians there are, but then he sees God gives him this vision. It's not just this tiny minority. It's not just this little group right here that I'm bringing. God's saying I'm bringing in un uncountable numbers of people. And so God is going to be doing that activity. God's vision is just extraordinary. That area becomes an amazing area for Christian growth. And then even in Christians, you see God starts fulfilling that vision and bringing in people. By the time, within a couple of hundred years, we have the first Christian Roman emperor named Constantine in that same area. His, his, uh, his capital becomes renamed Constantinople, right near where John was writing to, the churches he was writing to. And by that century, by that 
couple of hundred years after John's writing, instead of 50,000, you have about 3 million Christians probably in the empire by that time. So God was already at work, even in that small group and exploding. You know, he couldn't have imagined, you know, think about our numbers today. The number of Christians that we have in North America today, in the United States today, we have more Christians in the United States today than was in the entire Roman Empire. People, not the entire number of Christians. That's an amazing figure. That's what God has been doing over the course of time. And I think, you know, we ought to be excited about that, encouraged about that. God's not stopped gathering his people into his kingdom. In the year 1900, you had about 550 million Christians globally. By 1970, we had about 1.2 billion. And today, there's about 2.6 billion people that call themselves Christian. Now that, you know, those are people that call themselves Christian. So, you know, not all of them are, we would agree with. But the point is that God is still expanding those people that are coming into his kingdom. And by amazing numbers. And that, think about what 2.6 billion Christians, significantly more people than would have been in the entire globe at the time of John's writing. It's just amazing. There are probably more followers for us. Think about us when we get discouraged. There are more followers of Jesus than we can imagine. And we can trust that God's at work doing, uh, gathering people. And so when we think about bringing people in, we don't need to be discouraged. It's not about us. That's really what I want us to get. It's not really about us. It's about what God's doing. God assigns us roles, and we have responsibilities. But God's doing the work of bringing in these people. The second thing I want us to look at is the next is that he's bringing in this number that nobody can now count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You see, God's gathering a wide range of people. He's it's a diverse multitude that he's gathering together. He's not simply gathering a large number. He's gathering people from all over the earth, all peoples, you know, not just simply one group. And in this, we see this is... There's so much depth in this biblically that we can't go into, but we'll just skim some of the top of this. But we, we see in this kind of a hint from John that he's a fulfillment of the promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And John, he had promised to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed when he calls Abraham out of Ur. And then later in chapter 22, gives this idea of multiplying his offspring. And he says that God promised that he's going to multiply his offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that's on the seashore. You know, this immeasurable, uncountable multitude. But here, this, isn't, this is a multitude from many nations. So it can't be the exact same, but it has that echo of it. Or it doesn't sound like it could be the same. But then we read in Galatians 3, 17 from Paul. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so you see that they are thinking that. And then even John in his gospel, Jesus, when he talks to the, to the people who are accusing him and he says to them, they're wanting to kill him, and he says, 
to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But instead, they were trying to kill him, and so they were doing the works of Satan. He said, so this is not just a fulfillment of promises, but it's also the mission of Israel. The mission of Israel was to be a blessing for the nations. In Exodus right, chapter 12, we see the, the story, the instructions about the Passover. And the Passover is just incredibly important. This is the picture. God's delivery of Israel out of Exodus is the picture in the Old Testament of salvation. When Jews would have thought of salvation, they would think of deliverance. And what is the deliverance? It's the deliverance out of bondage for them. That, what the amazing work that you see all throughout, through the Psalms and throughout all the, the writings of the Old Testament reflect back to that moment of God delivering Israel out of Egypt as a key moment. And right there, one of the, the key event is, of course, is the Passover meal and the key event of you know, killing the lamb and putting the blood over the doorway. And then right there in the middle of that, how is this about a blessing for nations, though? Well, you're there in the middle of it. In chapter 12, 37, 38, you have that Israel's coming out. They're journeying out. It says the people of Israel journeyed, and they were a mixed, a mixed multitude also went up with them. God didn't just bring Israel out. He brought a mixed multitude with them. And later in 48 and 49, he gives them instructions that the stranger who journeys with you can also become the same as a native. He can become the same as an Israelite. He gives instructions for that. And then there's only going to be one law between the Israelites and between the stranger. And so we see that Israel uh, was part of that mission. Again, in Deuteronomy, which we had some Deuteronomy, right? Chapter 4, when God had given the law, and he, Moses is preaching, and he's telling them about the law, one of the things he talks about them about is, to keep the laws a demonstration of God's nearness to Israel and of their, wins, of their wisdom that they know God and that God hears them and that the, they are to demonstrate the righteousness of God to the nations. And so part of the mission of Israel was to the nations. And of course, the mission of the church is to the nations. When although God gave us the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then the church goes out and do that. Paul, of course, was commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he's in a vision where the Lord is, sends him off to the Gentiles. And then in Acts 10, we see where Peter realizes that when he, when he meets with Cornelius, that God is bringing the Gentiles into his covenant people. And Peter says, truly, in 10, 34, and 35, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and is acceptable to him. You see, God has been working from the beginning throughout to go to the nations. God has been recovering fallen humanity from across the nations as part of his plan from the beginning, and he sent the Lamb, Christ, to die that we could bring, that all would be brought in. The church, even from that point, the global church, even from the beginning, has to do with what we think of as the nations. The first thousand years of Christianity was stronger in Asia 
and in North Africa than it ever was in Europe. We tend to think of it as more of a Europe and then on to America. But actually, for the first thousand years, the heart of Christianity would have been in Asia and North Africa. Syria and Egypt and Mesopotamia were all Christian centers for several of the first centuries. The center of Christianity around the year 500 would have been Syria. That's Antioch, right, in our, in, in, that we read of in Acts. That would have, that's in Syria. That area was the center of Christianity and a hub for Christianity for the first 500 years. The first major center is what later becomes what they call the patriarchates. The five major cities for the churches would have been Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. That's in Turkey, Syria, Israel, and Egypt, and only Rome is the only church that would have been in the West that would have been part of that major center for the churches. So the, the emphasis of the church would have remained in the East. Armenia and Ethiopia were also strong bastions. For first, by around the year 300, Armenia, which is right around the Black Sea, near Russia, let's see, you see that they took on Christianity, became the official faith of the country, of that, that nation, around the year 300. And Ethiopia, they had 10 generations of Christians in Ethiopia before the first Anglo-Saxons ever heard the word of God. And then this was the work of Syrian missionaries coming to them. And so God has been at work bringing in nations from around the world. And even in the last 200 years, Baptists have been part of that movement you know, in a big way. You know, William Carey is who I think about first and foremost. In, 19, in 1792, William Carey delivered a sermon that really, that led to the start of the Baptist Missionary Society. And his motion and the, was founded on two principles. And I think that as we gather encouragement from what John has to say to us, these two principles uh, should stick with us as well. It's expect great things and then attempt great things. You know, God is going to move. Expect great things from God, and then attempt great things for God. And so he went out, and he was the first missionary that the Baptist Missionary Society that formed from that uh, started, and he went to India, and there he went to Serampore, India, and spent the rest of his life there. And from there, he ended up doing Bible translations for the the folks in India, who at that point, in that part of northern India, had never had the scriptures. And so he was part of creating eight Bible translations and 29 tra and translations of portions of the scripture into 29 languages. Eight full Bible, eight Bibles in uh, different, I'm sorry, five Bible, full Bible translations in five different languages, and then 29 portions in different languages. And then God's still at work today. <clears throat> From the nations, in 1910, about 80% of Christians were in North America and Europe. 80%. By the year 2010, that number had shifted to where only 40% are in Europe and North America now. 60% of all Christians are in what's called the Global South. That's Africa, Asia, Latin America. It's been a shift from 1900, about 98 million Christians on those continents, to... 2023, we have 1.76 billion people, billion Christians in this continent. The major shift of the heart of Christianity is shifting, just like it shifted from the East to Europe. We see a shift that's been moving. 
down to the global south in terms of numbers. In Africa, in 1900, there were 9.6 million people. And by 2023, we had 718 million people. 718 million people on the continent of Africa are Christian just in the last 123 years. That's an increase of, you know, 710 million people almost, 709 million people. That's an amazing work of God. And, so, and in fact, East Africa, in terms of regions, used to be the United States had the most numbers of Christians in, the, on the, in any one region, and that's shifted now to East Africa. So God is still gathering the nations, and he's going to continue God to gather the nations. And so we can be encouraged that God is doing that. I mean, that should be an encouragement. Even when we see things are difficult here, we know that it's not that the gospel has lost its power. It's not that the gospel is not reaching people. It's not that God's not moving and bringing people into his kingdom. He is. It's that we're not seeing it around us. And so... I just want to say that, you know, one of the things I, I think, you know, that should prompt us to pray more about what's different here and what's different about us. And, you know, one of the things that you see, we did get to spend about three months teaching in Africa, is the evangelical zeal that people have to go out and share the gospel. You know, almost every student that you talk to that we were teaching, one of the things we talk about is just the passion that they had to see people come to Christ. And, uh, you know, it was just, you know, amazing and infectious. It was just that exciting. So God has bringing together, a, a, he's building, he's calling to himself a number of people, a multitude that nobody can number. He's calling them out from every nation across the globe, and he's still at work from the first time till now. He's also strengthening his people through trials. And we heard about tribulation. Richard mentioned that, and I thought, man, that's so prescient that God did that because that's one of the things that we're talking about in this passage, that John is writing to people who are in the midst of tribulation. They're in the midst of trials. They're in the midst of persecutions. You know, and here we see in this passage, what does he say about them? They're going to stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And down in verse 14, we have one of the, the elders that sit around the throne of God that interprets uh, this, the meaning of this vision for John. And he says to him about who these people are, he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So you see that John even describes himself back in the verse one nine, as he's writing to the churches, he says, I'm your brother and a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance in, Christ, in Jesus. And so you say that already that he's writing this to them. You see, for many Christians, for us, we always see tribulation. And of course, there's lots of discussion about what the great tribulation is. But when we think of tribulation for us, just like Richard was talking about coming tribulation, Tribulation is a future word for us. For most Christians, for most history, it's never been a future word. It is a word right then and right now for most Christians for most of the time. 
you know, it's been over The Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimates that about 70 million Christians have been martyred throughout history. 70 million. Over half of those were martyred in the 20th century. So in the last 120 years, over half of all Christians that have ever been martyred have been martyred. And then from 2000 to 2010, we have another million that have been martyred. About 100,000 per year Christians are dying across the globe, dying because of their faith. You know, one of the things that, speaking of being in Africa, one of the things that's funny, so I was teaching from a, a, a Baptist curriculum that's for training for pastors and for lay leaders, and you have different modules, and one of the modules that I was going through was for missions. And that module that I was going through for missions, it has, you know, different reasons why people go, you know, why we should do missions, the, the you know, how to do missions, you know, the reason why behind it, and then reasons why people don't participate in missions. And they had, like, the top ten reasons that people give for not doing missions. And I, I can't remember all the list exactly, but one of them I definitely remember it was the tenth one, and the tenth one, this was curriculum written for people in the United States. The tenth one on there was, if I go into missions, God will send me to Africa. Well, that's kind of hard to explain to people who are living in Africa about why that would be a problem. <laughs> so, you know, I had to explain to them, I said, well, what this means is for people from the United States or the West, you know, we see Africa as a hard place to come to sometimes. And so I asked them, I said, you know, here in Kenya, that's where they were, we said, what's a hard place for you if you were saying, you know, if I go into missions, God's going to call me to a hard place? And without a hesitation, all of them said, Somalia. And then they talked about the believers in Somalia. You know, believers in Somalia, you cannot have this. You would, not have, you would be killed. What you'd have to do is you'd have to take this page right here and you'd have to cut this out. And then what you would do if you want to read that, you would keep that hidden on you somewhere. And then when you would go to the restroom, and the restrooms there are, are outside buildings, and when you would go to the restroom, you could sneak this out. And that's big. That would be how you would read your scripture. So, you know, God's people are moving in places, and there are people who are being faithful to God. And what we see in this passage is that God is giving these people the strength to endure the tribulation. You know, God's going to give us strength to endure our challenges. God's going to give us strength to endure, like Richard said, and doing well if we trust him and turn to him. And I hope that listening to this passage, that what God is building in the future is a people for himself, or he's bringing in the future a people for himself, you know, that can't be counted, that are from every nation, and that are coming out of difficult circumstances. And all throughout this chapter, Jesus talks as the lamb. He talks uh, in every one of those letters about conquering. To the one who conquers, and talks about the blessing. And what Jesus means is just back like what I said over there where he saw the lion that conquered. You conquer through perseverance and through suffering, just like Jesus conquered through his death and resurrection.
A couple of final just quick points here that I just want to mention is not only does he give you strength, people with strength for the, for during the tribulation, but he also here, they're wearing, wearing right robes. They've been purified in the blood of the Lamb. You know, and so he purifies us and cleanses us through you know, what Christ has done through the Lamb's blood, through his you know, death and resurrection. And so no matter where you are in life right now, you know, no matter what you're going through, no matter what the situation is, if you will begin, you can turn to Christ and begin to follow him and put your trust in him and trust in his blood. If there's been a moment where you're, you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, am I going to be part of that multitude? I'm not sure about that. If you're, if you're thinking that, you can trust and accept his sacrificial death for you and your sins so that you can be there among that multitude standing before the throne. And then the last two pictures here is you see them singing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They all speak different languages, but they're crying out in one voice, a loud voice. Salvation belongs to the God, or to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the victory cry of God. God is winning his victory over Satan, sin, and death, and has been. And he's been carrying it out from the beginning. And if we think about one last thing about how he's been carrying that out. And he's been carrying it out for his glory. And we see that as the angels see the amazing work of God in bringing these people, this multitude, to redeem them from their... Angels don't understand redemption. Angels don't get redemption. To see these people who were once enemies of God and what the Lamb has done, that God has conquered you know, Satan and sin that has separated them from him. And he's conquered that, not by... You see how God uses his power. He uses, he conquers through the power of going out and dying for the enemy. And we saw that in early Christians and Christians who are going out in these places that are difficult. They're going out and risking their lives and they're dying those. One last thing I want to read to you uh, and that I think is well, I said that did. well, I saved you from that. <laughs> One of the things I do want to mention to you, I, I can remember parts of it, is we just went through the connections class that you were talking about last time. And uh, we had several people who went through that connections class with us that were baptized. One of the questions, some of the questions that they asked, uh, one of the, you know, we asked questions about what people believe. And one of the questions, some of the questions I wanted to highlight for you is in a place like uh, India where they're Hindu lands, some of the questions that you get asked when you go up to be baptized are, number one is, are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to be kicked out of your home and lose the blessing of family? Are you willing to suffer persecution from a village and forgive them and go back and tell them about Jesus? 
Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny Jesus? Are you willing to go to jail? And are you willing to die for Jesus? Those are the baptismal questions that they ask. You know, it, it's, a, it's a different setting. And so one of the things that, to conclude here, I just want to look at that, that God is carrying people through. He's bringing people out of the darkness all around the globe. He's washing them in the blood of the Lamb and presenting them before himself to his glory and that the angels are going to praise him for that. And I want you to be encouraged because victory belongs to the Lord. And remember that. And, uh, you know, if you've been discouraged or distracted or deterred in any way from doing what you feel like God's doing, I just pray that, you know, you just turn that over to God. And I pray that we join God in what the work he's doing to reach the nations. And that begins by reaching the people right here around us. It begins by, you know, seeking out those people by thinking about those people, think about, as we think about the nations, think about people that, you know, you would like to see in church, but also think about people that maybe make you uncomfortable seeing in church because those people need Jesus. And think about, you know, just getting out of your comfort zone. Pray to God, you know, how can he use us and how can he uh, open up for us? Pray that we have... He gives us an opportunity to have a conversation that he brings someone to mind this week and gives you an opportunity to speak with them and gives you an opportunity to share with them. And I just pray that, you know, and if, like I said, if there's a, if you're not sure about your own status with God, if you haven't, you know, washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb, then I just pray that you would do that today. And, and then that's whatever is next. But thank you guys for letting me come and share a little bit today. Okay. David, what a wonderful message and really a challenge to us, isn't it? It's a great encouragement to us that God is reaching out to the nations. God is gathering a great, diverse multitude. All we need to do Right, to be a part of that is just to join in what he's doing. He's doing it. And if we want to be a part of that, then we have to have a passion for the lost. We have to have a love for the lost. We have to have a love for the, the gospel ministry. We've got to get up off our rear ends, go out to the nations, go out to the, the lost here around us, and have courage enough to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. God will gather a multitude around us here in Bastrop and Morehouse Parish. He will bring them in the doors. He's already doing it. And he just invites us to join in the work. So church, let us join in the work, the work of the ministry, the work of the gospel, and give God all the glory as we see the nations come in, as we see people of different races, different colors, even perhaps even different languages. Come in those doors and join us in worship. Let us join together as they do in heaven, praising and giving glory to Jesus Christ for his salvation. Let us see that happen.
If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're one of those, you're outside, right? Outside looking in and you're, you're here today. Christ died for you. He suffered and he died for you. And through his resurrection, you can have the power of salvation in your own life if you only look to Jesus. Will you look to him today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word of encouragement today, Lord, as we, we, we look at our own situation here and look at the world just right here around us, Lord, we can be discouraged because maybe we don't see all that you're doing, but Lord, you give us that big picture view. You are gathering a great diverse multitude and you invite your church to be a part of what you're doing throughout the world. You've done it all throughout history and you're doing it still today. And you will continue to gather the multitudes until that day that Jesus Christ returns. Father, help us to be faithful. Give us the strength to be faithful. Give us the passion, the heart, the love to be faithful to do what you have called us to do, Lord and join you in the work of the ministry. And Lord, if there's any today who've never trusted in Christ, Lord, touch their hearts. Let them see Jesus. Draw them to Christ. These things I pray in Christ's name. Amen.